So this evening we are going to draw to a close the short series that we did on the cities. We've been doing it here and across at Explore. So those of you guys who have been serving at Explore, Okay, so this, the series was called A Tale of a Few Cities, a play of the book, if some of you had the, the opportunity to wade through that book. Um, and I, I hope that just considering this, all right, so I hope that just spending some time looking at the theme of the city um, has helped us to, see, to just to consider again how God is at work not only in the hearts of individual believers, but also in the grand scheme of cities, um, which might be something that we overlook at times. So just to refresh your, your memory, or if, if this is your first time listening to this, um, we started out by noticing that our story started in a beautiful garden with Adam and Eve, and in, 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 in that garden, it seemed that this garden was the ideal setting for men and women. And then in that moment, um, sin set in. And we recognize that as sin set in, things changed completely. Okay, and then we were introduced to the theme, or at least the beginnings of this idea of the city as a strange result of human sin, of human violence. Um, and so we considered the, the, the fact that the two cities that receive the most mention in Scripture are these two cities that are polar opposite, um, an example of what life, what city life could entail um, based on what the condition of the hearts of men and women um, could be. And Jerusalem was the one city, and Babylon was the other city. Babylon was the city that embodies this idea of the will of man as it is pitted against the desires of God. And then there's Jerusalem on the bottom right there as a city that carries a prophetic call to all of God's people. It's in fact a city that is more than a place, um, but it's also an expression of Yahweh's desire to tabernacle with his people. And so this evening we're going to look at how the story ends. The, the end of the very end, as it were, that isn't really even an end, the end really is just an introduction into the beginning. Um, and for that, what we'll do this evening is we'll focus our attention on Revelation chapter 21, which was written by the Apostle John. And um, the revelation of John concludes for us with a final vision of this marriage of heaven and earth where an angel shows John um, a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. And God announces that he's coming to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. 
And so finally, in that story, the end of our story, um, we see that the bride and the groom are together and there's no more um, long-distance relationship challenges that we experience and joy is complete. Um, seeing each other face to face in the context of the theme of the city, as we'll see. And so that's what we'll, we'll look at um, this evening as we draw this to a close. Now, to understand how the story of cities kind of pool together, um, we have to place what we're going to read in context. Because <clears throat> there's such a lot of detail that gets mentioned, and it's, it's very easy, especially when we're working through Revelation, um, to get lost in all of the detail. So um, as we think about this theme of the city, and we kind of try to track with it through Scripture, and we consider where we are at now, then right now, at this very moment, the earth and all of creation is cut off from the full and complete life and experience of heaven. And, and I don't think that we have to look too far to confirm this idea that we are cut off. All that we need to do is to observe. Um, and when we do observe, what we do observe around us is we see um, selfishness, we see inequality, we see rampant greed, um, we see what we saw on Thursday evening and on Friday um, and no doubt what you will find when you open up your phone and you Google the news of the day. We see sin in many different forms. And our response to this, to use a biblical metaphor, in fact the metaphor that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, is that all of creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth. And so when we think about this metaphor that Paul uses to help us understand, then we right now, we have labor pains. We have discomfort. Right now we have nausea. We have cravings. We have anxiety and uncertainty. And along with all of that, we have regular visits to the great physician. However, despite all of that, despite, of, despite that reality, the new creation is here. And Jesus said it is at hand. That's how close it is. Um, and it's taking form even when we can't see it, and even though many people don't believe it. And so we do sense hints of the new creation now and then. And we sense and see elements of this new creation when someone is healed miraculously, perhaps when we pray or lay hands, or when we experience an unexplainable spiritual breakthrough, or we have an accurate prophetic word that comes to pass. These are like moments when an elbow or a little foot pokes from within a pregnant woman's belly. Those are what they remind us of this image of where we are at now and the elements 
that we will one day experience in all of its fullness. Because we know that one day, the fullness of heaven will be pushed forth into life, like a new baby emerging from the womb. And that's going to happen here on earth. And this is the language that the Apostle Paul uses to describe for us what our current situation is like. John, however, as we're going to see in Revelation, in his description in Revelation, he's using a different kind of language, a different way, a different style. He's using this language called apocalyptic language. It is an end-time language that prefers to use symbols and metaphors to describe for us what that's going to be like. It's kind of like some of the scriptures that we read in the Old Testament that the prophets used. It's maybe like poetry um, that we engage with in Psalms or perhaps some of the texts in Leviticus or some of Isaiah's writings. We wonder what is this person writing because the language doesn't speak to us in the 21st century. It's a different way of describing things. And so there is a sense in which Revelation isn't easy to understand. Let me just admit that. It's not a book that's easy to understand, but there is a blessing attached to it um, that John describes for us when we engage with that. Because John wasn't, he wasn't this, this um, transcribing for us a video-perfect version of what is to come when we read through Revelation. Instead, John, I think, was, he was trying to express an unexplainable picture or belief of which sometimes only metaphors and symbols help us to understand what he's describing. It's kind of like words can't fully explain. And so in the chapter that we are going to read, um, uh, chapter Revelation chapter 21, um, the recorded history of man is at its end. All of the ages have come and gone. Um, Jesus has gathered his church in the rapture. Uh, the tribulation has passed. The battle of Armageddon has been fought and won. Um, the Satan has been chained for his 1,000-year reign, um, and the, at least the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth commences. There's a new and glorious temple that has been established and built in Jerusalem. The final rebellion against God has been dealt with, um, and Satan has been dealt with, and then there's the the white throne judgment has taken place. Now, what we are going to read now happens after all of that. At least that's how I understand Scripture. Um, I said it to explore. If you Google it, you're probably going to find a different perspective. If you find a book somewhere, you're going to find a different perspective. Um, but what we need to focus on is the general message of how this is all going to draw to a close. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 21. Um, I asked Cindy if she would read it for us last week. Um, that's a lot. It, yeah, let me see how I go. <clears throat> I'll read it out. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children." But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and his brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. I think that's about 2,200 kilometers. And as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. 
The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I don't know how that works. But I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Lord does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's quite a picture, eh? It's a lot to take in when we think about this vision that John is trying to describe for us here. And so I think that there are just, there are too many details being mentioned here for us to consider all of them right now, but I'll try just to highlight just a few that relate quite strongly to the theme of the city and its relevance to us. Now, in this passage, an an angel of Yahweh, an angel of God, has taken John to the top of a great and high mountain. And from there, John looks down upon this holy city and he tries to describe for us what he sees. And the city, as he describes there, is like a massive crystal clear gem with the glory of God shining out from within its center over all of the new heavens and all of the new earth and all of eternity is bathed in the splendor or the radiance of this amazing sight that John has. There are no pictures that I could find that comes close to describing what John is describing here for us. The New Jerusalem is also called um, the Tabernacle of God. It's called the Holy City, the City of God, the Celestial City. It's even called the City Foursquare, and then, of course, also the Heavenly Jerusalem. And this city is literally heaven on earth. Um, That might be where we get that saying from, but that saying does little to no justice to the this image of what John is describing for us. So this city is described in various places. It's described in Galatians chapter 4. It's described also in Hebrews chapter 11, 12, and 13. But it's best described here in Revelation chapter 21. And God does here a complete makeover of heaven and earth. The new heaven and new earth are what some people also call the eternal state, where, they will, where, where righteousness will dwell, as Peter describes it. So the first heaven and earth have passed away, and there is no more sea. Now, in the belief of the, of the Hebrew mind of that time, the sea was something that represented chaos, 
and disorder and uncertainty with unknown dangers within it. And so here, as John sees it, there is no more chaos. There's no more disorder. There's no more uncertainty. And so he uses that idea to help us to understand just the perfection of what will be experienced there. After the recreation, God reveals the new Jerusalem. And John sees a glimpse of it in his vision. He says there in verse 4, The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And it is the place where God will dwell with his people forever. And all tears are wiped away. I don't know if we can understand what it would be like to not have trouble. To not have issues. I mean, right now, most of us here are sitting and a lot of what's on our minds are issues that we are going to have to face when we leave here. Um, and so this image that John is describing for us here is something that I don't think I can fully comprehend yet on this side of Jesus coming. Now there's something also that John is describing here that I hope you picked up on um, in the way that he is describing it here. This city, this new Jerusalem, is as much a people as it is a place. John sees the new Jerusalem as, in his words, a bride adorned for her husband, in verse 2. But later, when the angel takes John to see this bride, the lamb's wife, he shows John a detailed vision of a holy city, the new Jerusalem, in verses 9 and 10. In fact, if we take a few steps back, we notice that Paul also uses similar inner imagery in the way that John does when he describes the church. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26, he speaks of those in Christ as children of the Jerusalem that is from above. And then also Jesus himself described his disciples as a city upon a hill in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 in his Sermon on the Mount. You see, in those times in Judea, many cities were built on the top of a hill or perhaps on the side of a mountain. And as Jesus is speaking there, he points to that and he compares his disciples to that image of them being like a city as something that couldn't be hidden. Now coming back to Revelation, what John sees there is the church as she is in Christ in the present and what she is becoming in Christ, a reality that waits to be seen. And so as we continue to follow Jesus Jesus is transforming us from an old Jerusalem, as it were, 
into this idea of a new Jerusalem. And God's intention for us is actually expressed in the name of the city, New Jerusalem. It is a place of shalom, a place of harmony, a place of peace, and the Prince of Peace governs over it. And then in verse 12, John moves from describing its general appearance, he moves to its exterior, its design beginning with the walls. The walls of the city are described as great and high, and they are an obvious symbol of exclusion of all who are unworthy to enter the city. Though many believers will enter into this city's glory, there is the chilling reminder, I think, that only the redeemed may enter there. And in the wall itself are 12 gates that are guarded by 12 angels and described with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel as well as the 12 apostles, showing that the new Jerusalem will have among its citizens not only believers of the present age, but also Israel and the saints of other ages as well. Now, in the minds of the Hebrew people, walls hold great significance. In fact, last year we did a whole series on looking at Nehemiah and the process of just simply rebuilding a wall. Now, without a wall, no city in the ancient Near East was safe from rival nations. It wasn't safe from rival nations. It wasn't safe from bandits, from gangs. Even wild animals could just venture into the middle of your city. And then the more economically and culturally developed a city was, the greater the value of the things within the city and then the greater the need for the wall, which we also learned by looking at Nehemiah. And so we understand that walls symbolize security and they symbolize safety. Even as we think back to the story of Cain, the one who built the very first city, And we remember why he left the garden and built the first city that is mentioned in Scripture. We remember that he built the city with walls because he wanted to feel safe. Because he had just killed his brother, and so he would have been worried about people coming after him. And so since, if we think about that, Since the birth of cities, we as fallen people acknowledge the need for walls because of the condition of our hearts. But here in the new Jerusalem, this Jerusalem that John is describing for us here, we no longer need to be concerned with safety or security. It's beyond my mind just to think about that idea that I will no longer need to be watching my back or closing the windows 
or putting up burglar bars on computer, <laughs> electric fencing. These are the things that concern us in our day. You drive through Pinelands, you'll notice people love a good wall in Pinelands. Those are things that will no longer concern us when we think about this vision of the new Jerusalem. And then as we continue to read, we won't unpack that, John continues to describe what he sees in the last few verses of chapter 21. And though the description of the city does not answer all of the questions that we have concerning eternity or what it's going to be like, the revelation given to John describes a beautiful and a glorious future for all who put their trust in the living God. As we reflect on, again, just this theme and as we've tracked along with it, I think I at least recognize the fact that the story of the Bible and the, the theme of cities creates for us an expectation when we think about that. But we build our own cities full of corruption and violence um, and taxi strikes and those kinds of things, sometimes unintentionally. But there is a city of God coming. And the Bible authors identify that we will have an important role to play with the manifestation of that prophecy today. Jesus clearly understood that Jerusalem as it stood in his day was opposed to the purposes of God. And so when Jesus came, he came to be a part of helping that generation turn and avoid the fire and the flood of judgment. However, as we know, not only were they not interested in hearing Jesus, Jesus himself knew that he was going to lose his life by standing against the Jerusalem of his day. And so I think when followers of Jesus also stand against the Jerusalem of our day, today, we too stand the chance of losing our lives. And so when we become the city of God, when we live out the ethics of Jesus, the ethics we hold to, we find are actually opposite to the ethics of the cities of this world. You see, cities embody human fear and scarcity. And so in the minds of city folk, there's this thinking that there's never enough to go around. There's never enough for everyone. And so what happens out of that is people tend to protect themselves from anyone who looks like they want your stuff. And this then creates this cycle of violence and revenge. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to work to break that cycle. And we break that cycle of self-conceitedness, of violence and revenge and greed when we live lives of radical generosity 
something that unsettles who we are in our Jerusalem of this day. It's the kind of generosity that Jesus models for us. The kind of generosity that we are called to live out. And when we live it out, it appears as foolishness to the Jerusalem of our day. And unless we practice the kind of radical generosity that Jesus describes in his Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, I think we will no doubt find ourselves being consumed by the empire of man. But when we prophetically point out to the Jerusalem of our day, if you understand what I'm saying, that there is a lack of care and a lack of ministry shown to the least of these in Jesus' words, then what happens is the Jerusalem of our day usually responds that the least of these are the problem, not them. But Jesus is leading this new Jerusalem, who is us, to be a movement of people who will surrender their lives from self-love towards love for others to birth and bring about the city of God today. And so as we think about this theme of the city and we, we try to place ourselves in this story, it's important to note that each one of us have been called to play a very particular role in the plan of God. And none of us are here by mistake. There is a very measured decision that was taking, taken in all of us being here. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that as we think about your plan, um, we are so amazed and in awe at the fact that you reveal to us your plan. That even as we reflect on the actions of man that have brought us to this point, you actually show us and direct us to the way out. And so as we think again about cities and we think about cities being these um, containers that hold image bearers of God, as we think about that image, we are reminded of this idea that cities are a reflection of what is in the heart of man. And so we, we, we bring before you again our own city, Cape Town, Kaapstad, Ikapa, Kuitaib. We bring our city before you with all of its issues, and we ask, Lord, as we think about this picture of the new Jerusalem, of this plan that you have, this place that you are taking us to, we remind ourselves that our city is nowhere near that image. The beauty and the majesty of what is to be, we are not there. And so we ask, Lord, that your kingdom would come in our city, that the reality and the beauty of who you are 
would be manifest in spaces of brokenness in our city. We bring our city before you, Lord, a city that is divided along so many lines. And we ask that in all of those spaces, you would raise up people. You would raise up citizens of the new Jerusalem. That they would recognize their citizenship is not of this world, but their citizenship is of this new Jerusalem. That they would speak life into the spaces that they find themselves. That they would work to bring your kingdom to come here in Cape Town as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.